This is Andy Nairn, author of Go Luck Yourself, 40 Ways to Stack the Odds in Your Brand's Favour. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Andy Nairn to talk about his book, Go Luck Yourself, 40 Ways to Stack the Odds in Your Brand's Favor, published by Harriman House. Andy Nairn has led a charmed life. He stumbled into advertising after studying law at Edinburgh University. Almost 30 years later, he's one of the world's most respected brand strategists and a founder of one of the UK's most successful creative agencies, Lucky Generals. Just how creative is Andy? Business Insider has listed him as one of the top five creative people in world advertising. And this year, Campaign Magazine named him one of the top brand strategists in the UK. And interesting fact, he is the first Scottish author to appear on the Marketing Book Podcast. I'm rich and I'm dead sick. Andy, congratulations on Go Luck Yourself and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you very much. What an amazing introduction. I should have you in all my meetings. Uh, It's fabulous. Oh, well, happy to do that. Happy to do that. And before we get going, though, I want to mention that the royalties from this book, you want to share your luck with others. You're donating your royalties to Commercial Break, uh, which I believe is an organization that helps working class talent break into the creative industries. Can you say more about that? Yeah, it just felt like a really nice idea. The book is about luck. And um, as you say, I've had uh, my fair share of luck over the years. So it felt like a nice bit of karma to give all the royalties away to people who need a little bit more luck than I do right now. So um, that's where all the money is uh, is going to those, those good people. Uh, and I think, you know, especially at the moment in... I guess all parts of the world, it's hard for kids to be, you know, finding work, and it's even harder if they come from disadvantaged backgrounds. So that's why I've chosen that particular cause. So, how can somebody find out more about uh, being able to benefit from that? They have a website. They have a website, and they have social media. You know, they're on the, all the usual places like Twitter. Yes, and they do lots of very good work with agencies and with companies to help them recruit more mindfully uh, and more sort of uh, diversely. Uh, and then they help the talent themselves get those jobs and so train them for interviews and, and that sort of thing. Oh, well, we will make sure to include links to uh, their website so folks can uh, find out more about that and maybe they'll get lucky. 
You're lucky, wee man! <laughs> so, Amazing. it's only going to get worse, Andy. And one other thing, at the end of this interview, Andy is going to tell you, the listener, how you can win a copy of the book. So, you're uh, Scottish, okay? And that's a, big, this, yes. that's a big deal to me, okay? I've got a golden retriever right behind me as we record this, and a big fan of scotch and golf and... You know, all kinds of things that come from Scotland. However, you've written a book about luck. And what I'm wondering is, have your Irish friends accused you of cultural appropriation? That's, yeah, that's a good idea, isn't it? You know, well, we're, we're very close uh, friends, the Irish and the Scots. We're sort of Celtic um, brothers in arms. So I think, um, you know, uh, we, we occasionally share sort of concepts, we steal things off each other. Um, what I often sort of uh, see, um, uh, people in Ireland sort of claiming responsibility for Halloween, whereas it was actually, I, I sort of feel that that was a Scottish uh, festival, but um, we have lots of things in common. So I think um, uh, I, I'll borrow a little bit of their luck if uh, if they'll allow me. Okay, okay. A lot of listeners in Ireland. Um, I should also say there's obviously the influence of the Scots and the Irish in the United States is enormous, which I think is in part why Americans have such authority problems. And we thank you for that. So... <laughs> But I'm interested in the name of your agency, Lucky Generals. My dad was a general who thought of himself as being quite lucky, particularly after having survived four combat tours. What was the inspiration for your agency name? Wow, that's incredibly impressive, by the way. I didn't, I didn't realize that. I knew that you had um, done military service yourself, I think. But, um, uh, well, it comes from a Napoleon quote. Um, he was asked uh, a couple of hundred years ago, obviously, he was asked, uh, what did he look for in his officers? And he just shrugged and said, bring me uh, your lucky generals. In, a, in other words, he wanted people who could deliver results on the battlefield rather than just talk a good game. And we kind of figured that's quite a nice thing for an agency to um, to um, believe in. We've got a track record and that's really what clients want at the end of the day is results. And we like the idea of going into battle for them. And of course, over the last 18 months or so, it's been, you know, trench warfare. Uh, so we've had to fight pretty hard, but uh, we've uh, lived up to our name. That's terrific. So I, I have to be honest, as I was reading the book, one song kept going through my head, and it was Get Lucky. You, you've, I'm sure you've mm. heard that song, but not the one most people have listened to. I don't know if you've ever seen the video of the Russian army chorus singing that. Oh, no, that sounds fantastic, though. I love oh, the sound it's of so funny. It's hilarious. And I'm going to include a link to that video at your episode's website page at Marketing Book Podcast. It's, they have very thick Russian accents, and they're standing there in their uniforms, and it just thought they look like a bunch of lucky generals singing that, uh, about luck. So That sounds fantastic. And, you know, that song broke, and this is obviously pure luck, um, not intentional uh, on our part at all, but it broke the very month that we set up Lucky General. So it was May uh, 2013, and that song was everywhere you listened, um, <laughs> which was a lovely bit of serendipity. Um, well, you got lucky. We certainly did. You yeah. did. So now, last question about being Scottish. Do you get along well with, with English people? Well, uh, I've lived down here, um, you know, all my working life. So, uh, uh, I mean, I love the place and it's given me a great, you know, career and home and all the rest of it. Uh, my kids have English accents, so they, you know, they struggle with my name and all the rest of it. Um, but uh, barring... Are your parents a upset of, about their grandchildren having English accents? 
Well, we get used to it um, after a while, and uh, I'm hoping that um, you know when, when they when they're adults and they maybe have a little glass of whiskey, they'll uh, they'll uh, revert to the, uh, the their mother tongue sort of thing. Yes. Um, seems to happen with all of us we all sort of increase our accents when we're back home and with friends and i've had a couple of drinks um, but no um, we we all get on uh, just fine and uh, you know uh, as i say i've, I've uh, really enjoyed um, my life and career down here terrific well i ask because not all scottish people get along well with the english mr english colonel telling me to lose weight oh i'm a hard case he says Okay. Was so good. <laughs> uh, so anyway, oh, and I'm, I forgot to mention bagpipes. Those are really cool too, along with golf and golden retrievers. And there's so many things that came from Scotland. That's right, Andy Nairn. Not only did I read your book, I went way down some Wikipedia uh, rabbit holes, uh, reading up on uh, Scotland and, and all the things that have come from there. So let's talk about the book, though. I'd like to read a intro from the beginning. You write, luck is a four-letter word in business circles. You won't hear it at the annual general meeting or read it in the annual report. Neither will you find it in any case study, training, manual, or resume. As for books like this, well, a recent survey of business journals found that only 2% of them go anywhere near the subject. This strikes me as odd because after almost 30 years in advertising, I've often been struck by the pivotal role that chance plays. And when I talk privately with senior business people, they say the same. In this book, I want to break the taboo. I'll draw on my own experience, but also everything from architecture to zoology to explore the role of luck in building a brand. Then I'll provide practical advice that will help you stack the odds in your brand's favor. That last bit is crucial because it strikes the heart of the silence. Luck remains a dirty secret because it's seen to undermine the virtues of hard work, talent, and intelligence that are at the heart of any successful business culture. Frankly, if commercial success is dictated by some shadowy force called fate, then we might as well all give up. But I'm not arguing that. Instead, I believe that luck exists and also that you can prove it. So the book is organized into four sections. The first part is about appreciating what you've got. You know, like um, you write, like individuals who don't always recognize their privileges, companies are often blind to their inherited advantages. And the second section is where you are teaching the reader to look out for opportunities everywhere. You write, chance often presents itself unexpectedly and requires an open mind. To spot it. And the third section is about turning misfortune into uh, good fortune. And the last section is about how to practice being lucky. In other words, like practical ways to build luck into your organization's systems, processes, and corporate culture. And at the end of every chapter, uh, you have a, a little block, a section that says what the conventional thinking is out there and what the lucky thinking is. So in other words, it'll say, Convention says, and then you say it, and then luck says, and you have that part. And in the first section, you've got chapters about people who think they're cursed with a bad product name or that it's a hindrance or that they are maybe doing business in a, a part of the world or, or in a city that people might not think is the ideal uh, place to, to be from, so to speak. And each of these sections has 10 chapters. And I'd like to start with the, the section that is on page 21. And at the end of the chapter, you write, the conventional wisdom, the conventional thinking is that brands need to find a meaningful difference. I mean, that sounds like 
something any marketer would say. But you argue that it's better to be stupidly distinctive than deeply different. Explain what you mean there. So this is based on some thinking and lots of research, really, that's been done by a chap called Professor um, Byron Sharp, mm-hmm. which some of your listeners may uh, know and you may, have, uh, I'm sure, be familiar with too. Um, he's done a lot of work um, over many, many categories, which find that really what, what is important and the way that brands grow is to be distinctive, which is slightly different from different, if that makes sense. Um, so what he says is that you, to be distinctive, you don't really need to uh, have something terribly profound um, behind your story. Um, you don't have to, you, the, the, your your point of difference doesn't have to mean anything um, particularly clever or smart. You, it just has to stand out. So, for instance, if you have a very powerful color, um, or if you have a, a really memorable name, or if you have um, you know a brand character that it, you're very familiar that is very you know much uh, associated with your brand that's more important than standing for something terribly highfalutin and um you know uh, uh more uh meaningful i guess um and he makes that point because people people have not got time to really interrogate the products that they buy and quite often really what swings the purchase decision is just um, sheer mental availability, you know, this kind of sense that, well, this is that's the brand that I remember, or that's the that brand that I see on the shelf, I have, you know, good associations with, even though I can't really um, perhaps explain why that is the case. Um, and a lot of companies bypass that process and spend so long searching for some elusive point of meaningful differentiation that they forget to be distinctive and that's a mistake because actually being distinctive is what matters it's interesting you write one of sharp's most iconoclastic findings is that meaningful differentiation isn't always necessary for commercial success instead companies should build distinctive qualities which help their brands stand out and make them easier to find crucially these attributes don't need to have any intrinsic purpose or profound meaning they could be something as simple as a color logo a tagline or a shape Interesting, interesting. And I, his book has been mentioned a lot. I've invited him on the show. He's very busy, um, but uh, the invitation's still out there. So uh, if you know him and you're having a glass of whiskey with him, you know, put in a good word for the, the Marketing Book Podcast. I will do. Thank you. And I want to go to another one, uh, which is about uh, Lucky Pack. That's the, the chapter on page 41. You write that the conventional wisdom – and I guess this is how I'm going to frame most of these questions. Hmm. The paid and earned media are the most exciting ways to promote your brand. And you argue, and I agree completely, owned media should be your first port of call. So ex- explain what's going on there. And uh, you actually use the acronym POEM, Paid, Owned, and Earned Media. And you talk about the sexiness of the paid and earned, whereas actually your own media, you should be thinking about that first. Yeah, it's a funny thing for me to be saying, because obviously I run an ad agency, mm-hmm. and we do a lot of paid advertising, and we do a lot of earned uh, media work as well. But what we always say to marketers is, you know, don't forget the gold mine that you're sitting on, which is your your own media. If you've got a pack, um, you know, that's an amazing piece of real estate. That, your uh, package. Is, yeah, your packaging. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's not just the, 
you know, the, the space where you can put all the boring ingredients and, you know, uh, list all the, uh, you know, the, the, the dry rational information, you can use that as an, a billboard. Um, you know, if you look at the work that somebody like Oatly has done, um, they effectively use their cartons of oat milk as, uh, you know, as billboards uh, in the conventional sense. Um, or if you've got a if you've got a shop window, that's yes, of course, that's primarily to perhaps to um, be a gateway into the the store and show off some product. But it can also build the brand and um, create you know really special uh, perceptions of the brand. In again, in the way that a billboard or a television commercial might do as well. So um, it's about not overlooking these unbelievably powerful assets that you have that you're probably just so familiar with that you never think about. And actually, that's a, a general secret of the book. So many things that we have in organisations, um, we're so familiar with them that we forget how special they are. And it's just reminding ourselves all the time to appreciate how lucky we are to have things like a packaging or a, um, a, a shop window or a, a presence on social media. And other areas that folks may not be thinking of, like a, a follow-up email announcing <laughs> that your package is on the way or that something is coming. There are so many places of owned media that I think a lot of people are overlooking. That's right. Um, Even your you invoice. Know. Yeah, an invoice, every single opportunity. You know, some some companies might use the 404 page, you know, the page where you get sent when you've um, made a mistake. But if you look what Marvel does, when you when you go there, there's a really nice, fun, self-deprecating 404 page where, you know, they make they use the characters and they make a joke about being in the wrong place. But that all that does, um, you know, it just builds that brand and it accentuates uh, those positive feelings you might have. Even when you've ended up somewhere by mistake, you can come away from that page feeling better about the brand, which is quite something. And even your, your on-hold messages. Yeah, of course. Literally every single possible um, uh, uh, point of interaction um, with the brand is, is an opportunity to do something special and build a positive impression. Yes. Well, let's go to the second section, which is about looking out for opportunities everywhere. And I want to quote from page 53 and ask you to talk about um, – a lot of research that's come about. You write, whereas the previous section was about appreciating what you've got, this one's about looking out for unexpected opportunities everywhere. This isn't a new idea. The Greek poet, Ovid, advised that chance is powerful. Let your hook always be cast in the stream where you least expect it. There will be fish. But now, this age-old advice has been confirmed by empirical research into the psychology of luck. Can you share with us some of that, some of those findings? Yeah, so this was a, um, a British psychologist called Professor Richard Wiseman, and he does this really interesting experiment where he recruits people and then asks them um, whether they identify as lucky or unlucky. And then he asks them to uh, read a newspaper and to count the uh, number of photographs in the newspaper. And something really remarkable happens. So the people who uh, say that they are mostly lucky kind of people uh, finish the task in just a couple of seconds. And the people who say that they're unlucky most of the time uh, take quite a few minutes. And the reason is that on page two of the newspaper, he puts a little notice that says, uh, you can stop counting now. There are actually 42 uh, photographs in this newspaper. Just tell the guy on the door and you can take your money and go home. And the 
point that he makes is that really when we say that we're lucky, sometimes all we really mean is that we're the sort of person that um, has our eyes open for opportunities and for shortcuts. Um, whereas if we are, if we say that we're unlucky, that can be because um, we we tend to have our heads down in the task that we've been given, and we're not distracted by um, things on our peripheral vision. And I think the really important thing for uh, organizations, because he, he does this test for individuals and then he helps them improve their luck by being better at spotting the you know op uh, opportunities as they present themselves in life. Um, but I think for, for organizations, this really rings true because especially right now, we've all got our heads down and we're sort of often buried in the task that we've been given. So we're sort of counting the photographs. And sometimes that, that means that we, we, we forget or we don't spot all these other opportunities that aren't quite on the brief that we've been set, um, but might be much more interesting and might actually speed up the thing that we've been given to do. Um, so I, I, you know, really encourage organisations to um, to have processes or cultures where, you know, they're very full of diverse stimuli. You know, you can get ideas from all sorts of different parts of life, whether that's, you know, from science or religion or um, sport or music or the arts, you know, there are opportunities lurking in all of those kind of places, not just in the obvious, you know, uh, uh, go-to places for a business. It's interesting how businesses think of them as flukes. And you write, scientists don't regard such discoveries as flukes because they appreciate that there's a real skill in spotting the opportunities in the first place. However, in the commercial world, this method of working <laughs> is frowned upon. But let me ask the listener a question. Would you like to have 250 pounds? You can win 250 pounds. I'm taking – it's a problem when you get interviewed by somebody who read every page. This is what Andy's doing, just because he wants the proof. The proof is in the pudding here. He's backing it up. He has hidden a deliberate mistake in one of the chapters in this book, and he will give 250 pounds to the first person to spot it. And he's even got his – Email me at luckymistake at luckygenerals.com to claim your award. Good luck, listener. Don't say you haven't gotten anything from uh, listening to the <laughs> show and, and, and reading the books. So let's, uh, let's go to another section, which is the section on the lucky dog, page 67. Okay. And you write that uh, marketing is all about great, positive storytelling. Oh, boy. <laughs> and Luck says there needs to be jeopardy to keep it exciting. And I want to quote from the first paragraph of this chapter on page 67, which I, I couldn't agree with more. You write, in recent years, it's become fashionable for marketers to describe themselves as storytellers. To be honest, I'm not keen on this. I mean, if your name is Hans Christian Andersen, then feel free to put this job description on your LinkedIn profile. But the rest of us should probably investigate what constitutes a good yarn before we tell the world that we spin them for a living. And listeners to this show have probably heard me in the past talk about, you know, there's certain words that marketers need to be careful mentioning around civilians. And when I say civilians, I mean people who aren't in the marketing department. One of them is if you start talking about brand, branding. One is if you talk about storytelling, all these kinds of things, you need to be careful. These are very, very powerful things to do, and you should have them in your arsenal. But that is something you should be careful about. So I recently interviewed Janine Kernoff, who is one of the co-authors of Everyday Storytelling, and a wonderful book. And 
in the book, they talked about the importance of conflict. It's probably my, ch- my favorite chapter, and yet we're all so uncomfortable with it, particularly in the advertising world. And I was wondering if you could talk about the importance of conflict and also the different types of conflict that experts say make for uh, the best narratives. Yes, I think that that's uh, that hits the nail on the head. Um, all great stories have a have a conflict, and there's a lovely quote from the late great John Le Carre, who said um, he was asked what what does a what is a story, what does it constitute, and he said, "Well, the cat sat on the mat is not a story, but the cat sat on the dog's mat is the beginnings of a story." That's when it gets interesting when there's that kind of tension. Yeah. Uh, which I really like, and and but you know I think there's not a lot of there's not a lot of dogs um, uh, in advertising stories. Your your golden retriever needs to be uh, in more of uh, advertising stories because um, what what advertising does is we actually had him in an ad once. Actually, oh really? Oh, yeah. fantastic! I'm sure he made it much better. He did. Um, we need dogs, uh, both metaphorically and literally, in in our advertising, and I think that the metaphor is is there because. You know, what, what we do in advertising a lot of the time is we, we pretend we're storytellers, but then nothing goes wrong in our stories. There are stories of perfect people and wonderful things happen to them in magical lands. And that is boring, right? I mean, you know, what, what do you watch on Netflix? You know, what, what are we all watching at the movies these days? They're always, there's always a, a, a dramatic tension. You know, it's, it's Walter White and, uh, you know, Breaking <laughs> Bad. It's, you know, something is going wrong in someone's life. If something is just perfect, then we're not going to care about the protagonist. Um, so I think, you know, obviously what we don't want to do is, is create some, you know, horrendous, uh, dark, um, sinister storylines for our, our brands. But Well, and also one that we can't help with. I think a lot of that's, that's companies exactly sometimes right. do sure. that. Yeah. And, you know, of course, we only, you know, sometimes have a short amount of time. We don't have a couple of hours. We might only have a few seconds, but you can still introduce a bit of conflict. So, so one of the things I do in the book is I go to the people who are really proper storytellers rather than the kind of phony kind that we sometimes talk about ourselves being. Um, so people who've made great movies or great TV shows or written fantastic novels. And, you know, when they, explain what the ingredients for story are. They break down conflicts into, you know, half a dozen kind of types. So for instance, there may be a conflict between uh, the character and and themselves. I mean, that's kind of what Hamlet is all about, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, um, yeah. You know, but a lot of advertising doesn't um, doesn't acknowledge that because it sounds like you're expressing self-doubt. But any great salesperson will tell you that sometimes if you can reflect a little bit of self-doubt and you can acknowledge a worry that your prospect perhaps has then and then diffuse it, you can create a little bit of tension and say, I know, I know you're probably thinking this, but don't worry because here's our response. So you can kind of diffuse, it's like the ticking time bomb, you can diffuse it in the, in the course of your sales um, speech. And, mm-hmm. and that can be really powerful. So and kind of a- it could, I think it brilliantly telegraphs to the prospective customer that you understand them. Exactly, exactly, and it's and it feels um, more honest, you know. Oh wow, here's somebody who's actually acknowledging a potential weakness. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, so then there are other kinds, you know, whether it could be a character versus character. You know, that's a straightforward fight. That's your your Coke versus Pepsi, your Mac versus PC, mm-hmm. your McDonald's versus Burger King. Um, you know, and they're more commonplace in in advertising circles. But often brands don't get them right because if you 
if you're not careful, you can draw more attention to your rival and make yourself feel a bit small and petty. Yes. Um, so, so I think humor is often quite a good way to, to address that so that you're not being super mean about your rival. You're actually perhaps ridiculing them. That can be more hurtful than, than really laying into them in a kind of serious way. So would um, Fat Bastard versus Austin Powers be a good example of character versus character? <laughs> that, that's a fantastic uh, example. Absolutely. There's no off position on the genius switch, Andy. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I'm getting a I'm getting a battering here, aren't I? Uh, I'm, <laughs> You're doing great. I'm going to think of some Scottish uh, response to all of this later on. I'll hit you with it later. And um, when he says hit, you can count on it actually being a hit. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so and so on and so forth. So there, you know, uh, in the book, I talk about you know whether it's um, there can be a rivalry between the character and the environment. I mean, that's kind of quite an interesting storyline right now when we're buying brands, but we're also perhaps a bit worried about you know the impact they might be having um, on the planet mm-hmm. um, or or character versus society. You know, a lot of brands these days, um, not always brilliantly, I have to say, are are talking about you know, the role that they play in some global fight of some sort. Their you know, brand to, purpose, yes, and I definitely want yeah. to talk about that in a couple of minutes. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, that can, in the right hands, can be a kind of an interesting battle for you to show how you're playing your part in that battle and other people can join you and help you um, and so, so forth. The, the point is that there's got to be something, there's got to be a tension, there's got to be some jeopardy, things could go wrong, something could happen, um, that you care about. Otherwise, you're not going to bother about this um, story that you're being spun by a brand um, that is just trying to sell you something. Yes. And the really effective salespeople know this inherently. They introduce that conflict and they get the uh, prospect to make themselves squirm and, That's uh, right. and, and get ready for some sort of status quo change. So yeah. let's go to uh, another section, page 81, Lucky Cakes. And it's where you talk about your category is unique and your thinking must be original. That's the conventional thinking. And Luck says, borrowing ideas from elsewhere can lead to more radical solutions. And what's interesting is you talk about how cross-fertilization is perhaps less popular in marketing circles than it is in other industries. Can you explain what you mean there and, and perhaps why? Yeah, I think sometimes in marketing, we we have rules about what category we're in. You know, if you're in the auto market, you say, well, you know, you know, the car market, the automobile market has some very specific rules that we must all obey. And then when we do our research, we we only talk to a certain kind of person that buys a certain kind of car that we're interested in. And we, when we do a competitive review, we only look at other cars. But, you know, maybe we compete with you know, a much wider competitive set. Maybe the really what your car is competing with is other forms of transport, perhaps. Yes. Or, or other forms of, you know, m- you know, really the question might be, do we get another new car or do we spend money on a vacation this year? So, you know, we, we're often quite limited and we only think about, you know, the auto market and then we only hire people who've got automobile experience. Mm. But m- maybe we're better, maybe it would be really interesting to hire someone for that job that comes from, you know, the services industry or comes from tech or um, it c- comes from a completely different background that would just bring in fresh 
thinking and you know different ideas um and i think we need to get better at that because you know really one of the fundamental points of creativity is that if you take two unrelated points and smash them together often that collision that you know what's called a happy accident is what makes for the really exciting interesting novel um ideas rather than just keep plugging away at the same old same old well in this section you had me at tenants lager so we've talked about whiskey now let's talk about scottish beer can yeah. you give an example of what tenants beer who they are uh i was not familiar with them but that's because i'd never been to scotland so this, you, if there are any so listeners in to, scotland with a couch that i could stay on please let me know you, but need, ex- you, you need to get to scotland i'm sure there's i'm sure there's uh lots of tenants lager in those mike myers uh films um <laughs> right. as a plus prop. you reminded me that my name is scottish douglas so i might even get some discounts at absolutely absolutely it's a very good scottish name douglas <laughs> right. um so really tenants lager is is um the most popular uh drink and the most popular beer in scotland it's so um it's got such an enormous market share so it's it outsells um you know, every other beer, um, every other beverage outsells milks <laughs> and water. It's, it it's outsells hilarious. milk and water. I love it. Yeah. It's an amazing. We're a funny little country. We're the only country in the world where Coca-Cola is not the main um, soft uh, drink. It's it's a, a very odd little brand called Iron Brew, which which we're all told as children is made from uh, iron girders. Um, which obviously it isn't. Anyway, I digress. The, well, you've got the this Scottish amazing... do a lot of things right, okay? So the, ex- exactly. So we've got this incredible brand that is, um, you know, got an enormous market share. But of course, when you're in that situation, all that can happen to you is that you lose share. You know, and uh, over the years, lots of um, beers, including lots of American imports and uh, lots of you know continental European beers and craft beers and so on, they're all nibbling away, you know, at the share of tenants. And we spent ages thinking about this and how we were going to fix this. And we did all sorts of research amongst beer drinkers and we did all sorts of beer uh, tests, which I have to say was absolutely fantastic uh, fun. It was the best you, you suffer for your art. Andy. Yes, it's it's a hard job, I said to my wife, but somebody has got to do it. Um, <laughs> Thank you for your service. That th- exactly. Well, and you know, that actually turned out to uh, more or less be our idea because we sort of figured, you know, this when we when we tested those ideas in research, we found that nobody cared about them because actually people, guess what, don't don't test beers side by side. We they don't have intellectual conversations about the deep meanings of this particular beer or that beer. Um, you know, we just drink it and have fun. And so um, there was a sort of an interesting sort of observation where when, when I was going around this enormous brewery, which has been making beer in some shape or form, you know, for 500 years. And I sort of looked up at this power plant and it looked it looked more like a utility, like a sort of a, a power station, these huge vats. Um and pipes and so on. And it looked it looked like a government institution of some sort. You know, it just occurred to me that this is a brand that is, is by far the most popular and famous brand in Scotland of any category, really. Um, they pay for all the football. Their logo is a red letter T and it's on every single um, street. Uh, you know, so they literally light up the streets. And I thought that we should present this brand less like a beer. Let's just forget about all the other beers. Let's not pay them any attention. They're not worthy of our attention. And let's market tenants as if it was, 
you know, an alternative government um, department. And the idea was here like to a utility. Serve. Yeah, it's here to serve, which kind of sounds like it could be the armed forces, you know, here right. the Scottish Army or you know, an air an airline. And of course, it's ridiculous because it's only a beer. But oh, you know, but I people, would expect nothing less from Lucky Generals. There you go. Exactly. It's a nice military name. And people, in the same way that you were laughing and saying, well, you know, thank you for your service, people found it funny that this beer would have the audacity to say that we're here to serve. Uh, and, you know, then all the ideas that we created after that were were, were sort of um, ways to help people and, you know, in, in silly ways, you know, putting on uh, a, a sort of spooky bus to carry people around the pubs on Halloween and, and that kind of thing. Um, they were all services, the sort of thing that the best, funnest government department in the world would do. Mm -hmm. That's terrific. I loved it. Now, the last thing I wanted to ask about from this one section is one that, as I came from a, an advertising background, and I saw this all the time, and it's about getting too close to your product. And people want to talk about themselves, companies want to talk about themselves, and it's not really... What, what people are interested in hearing about. And nowadays, now that in advertising, we don't have a captive audience, we can't shout at people and order them to buy our products. <laughs> it's more difficult. Mm. Hopefully, uh, generations are starting, younger generations or generations of business people are starting to catch on to that. And this is on the chapter called Lucky Bags. And you mentioned uh, mm. coffee bags, page 93. And you write, you know, the experts always know best. Boy, we've heard that a lot this last year, too. But Luck mm. says, yeah, but you're usually not marketing to experts. And this was a very interesting story, and it's almost like I've lived it a few times, where there was a certain aspect of the product, and some of your people said, yeah, so what? <laughs> what does yeah. that do for me? Tell, talk about that. It was, pretty, it was a pretty uh, sobering experience for a strategist, I've got to say, because we'd been working with this company called Tailors of Harrogate, and they make... They're most famous for making tea. They make Yorkshire tea, but they also make coffee. Um, and it's really, really difficult to make a very nice tasting coffee bag for lots of very boring technical reasons. But it's, it's really tricky. And it had taken them decades uh, to perfect this art. And finally, they had done it. So you can imagine how excited they were and then how excited we were when we went up to their factory to to find out all about it. And we came back full of enthusiasm to brief a, a very young creative team who were quite naive and perhaps didn't really, um, you know, hadn't been involved in the, the business before. And they were completely unimpressed. And they just looked at us and, and said, well, these are just tea bags with coffee in them, aren't they? And they didn't want to hear anything about how exciting and wonderful and amazing these this this um, incredible new product development was. Um, so we we sort of told them to go away and you know not not be so um, silly and to think about how wonderful these were. But they just kept on coming back, sort of saying, "Look, these are th there's nothing interesting about these. I know that you've spent a long time developing them, um, but you know, isn't it just a bit ridiculous that nobody's ever come up with these before?" And then they said, Actually, they pick you they to go tell that to the client. Yeah, well, there you go. And to their great credit, we did tell it to the client, and the client um, accepted it, even though they had spent all that time working on it. They said, "Yeah, you know what? You're you're right. That is what normal people probably will think, and maybe we can have some fun with it." So we created a whole campaign um, where the idea was, "Why didn't we think of them before?" And we were, you know, taking uh, making fun of ourselves for you know, all the ridiculous times in history where we could have come up 
with uh, this product, you know, from Victorian times all the way to the present day. Um, and we, we sort of showed all the excuses and all the reasons why why the product never happened and why it had taken us such a stupidly long time to do, to develop the product. And the product sold out. It's been a phenomenal success now in the UK, even though in some ways it's the least launchy launch campaign ever. Right. It's very un- unstated and You probably didn't have the word new in there a lot. That's, that's right. It was, um, you know, it was, it was having a laugh at ourselves, but again, that's what good salespeople do, don't they? They, if they know your response is going to be, well, why have you taken so long to come up with, uh, <laughs> right. these products? Why not get that joke in first and then have some fun with it? And that feels really super confident, doesn't it? You think, well, they must be really proud of these products if they're able to um, make fun of themselves in that way. Yes, and they're also telegraphing that they understand what people are probably thinking. Yeah. So let's go to the the next section about turning misfortune into good fortune. And uh, in a minute, I want to talk about your uh, crisis response uh, acronym. I want to quote from page 111. Where you write, John Maynard Keynes revolutionized economics but played down his own creativity. He said, the difficulty lies not so much in developing new ideas as in escaping from old ones. Many marketers would agree. It often feels like our job is more Houdini than Da Vinci. Wrestling our way out of intellectual straitjackets rather than sketching ideas on a blank sheet of paper. Sometimes the ropes have been tied by our predecessors while other times... They're self-inflicted. Either way, there comes a point where too much accumulated wisdom becomes a hindrance rather than a help. And I'd like you to talk about this. Where you write, coming up with new ideas is hard, and breaking free from old ideas is harder. And I should add, I was smoking a cigar while I was reading this chapter. <laughs> that's that's. Uh, uh, I, I hope you uh, put it out by the end of the chapter. Uh, yes, I did. I did. Nice. Thank there you. Go. you. That is effective communications in action. You heard it here first. Real personalization, um, which we'll talk about in a minute. That, that's right. One-on-one, uh, one-on-one campaign to to help you make that um, change. And um, so this was, I, I feel like the, the, the point I was making in this chapter was that, you know, in every category, rules grow up. You know, we, we develop rules that become received wisdom. And when we join a company, we get told the one thing that you must do is this, or on no account must you ever do that. And you know, that's just the way things are in the whatever category, in the travel category, in the, um, you know. In or you the, mentioned the, automotive earlier. You know, th- there's a law, evidently, that you have to show a clean vehicle driving on a, a mountain road with wet streets. <laughs> yeah, that, that road down the coast of uh, California. That's must exactly. Be chock a block with um, uh, TV shoots happening. Um, yeah, so that becomes an established sort of conventional wisdom. And in this case, uh, and the reason why you're sort of uh, laughing about the cigar was we, you know, we had had, a, um, we were working on a, uh, an anti-smoking um, campaign uh, in the UK. And there have been, as there have been in the States, there have been decades worth of campaigns to try and persuade people to stop smoking. And because they are generally run by people with a scientific background, they quite understandably focus on all the different health um, you know, uh, concerns and challenges of, that smoking creates. Um, but uh, almost by definition, by this point, um, they weren't working because if people are still smoking, 
and enjoying it, despite being told for 50 years that it's going to um, do all this damage to them, then by definition, these guys are not going to give up um, just being told that um, for the umpteenth time. So this was a, a moment where we had to sort of think a bit differently. And it, it came to me in, in the middle of a focus group where it was going terribly, if I'm honest, because I had a whole bunch of work that was dying a death, um, pardon the pun, um, and going up in smoke, uh, going to pardon another pun. Oh, ideas um, about anti-smoking? Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. And they were all designed to you know tell you how dangerous it was. And, and, and actually, I realized it was not going well when a couple of my respondents asked if they could um, pop out to have a cigarette, <laughs> which... I thought was probably not something I should report back to the client. Right. Um, you were actually encouraging smoking. Yes, I w- I'd, I would. Cr- I'd created a little um, blip of smoking uh, in the the city that I was uh, uh, doing this research in. So um, I thought I better get out of this situation pretty quickly. And what one thing was really interesting: somebody um, mentioned that their their kids were very upset by them smoking and they'd actually popped a little note in their cigarette packet saying mom i wish you wouldn't um wish you wouldn't smoke it upsets me and they said do you know what that makes me much more inclined to give up than telling me i'm gonna um you know i'm gonna die i'm gonna have you know a serious illness because you know um my body i can do what i like with and also by the way it's probably not going to happen for 20 30 years um Mm -hmm. so it's a long way away but my kid's body, that's not my body. So if my kid's upset, I'm, I'm find that much more upsetting than, than worrying about my own health. And by the way, that is happening tonight, not in 20 or 30 years that I could hear her crying, you know, as she went to bed because she was worried about me. And so we thought that's really interesting. People, because on a sort of a very rational scientific level, you can see why scientists would just say, we'll talk about the health because there's no bigger motivator than you know, death and life. Um, so focus on that. But actually, human beings are not logical. And we're more worried sometimes by things like a kid crying um, and having a bad day than, um, you know, ourselves, you know, dying. And so we sort of switched the whole focus. Didn't you know, It was nothing to do with um, the health of the smoker. It was all about the worries of kids. And it was a dead simple idea. We didn't, um, there was no real creative idea. We just we we replicated what we'd heard in that focus group. We we got children to record messages, which we then put in their parents' favourite media. So they might be watching a particular show. Um, you know, the, the biggest soap opera in the UK is called Coronation Street. And uh, the kid would say, Hi, Mum, I know that you watch Coronation Street, so I just want to ask you to uh, stop smoking. It's really upsetting for me. Or you could read a newspaper, let's say the Times or the Sun, and you would say, I know you read this newspaper, um, but um, Dad, I'm really asking you to give up smoking. And a big picture of the kid and a simple request to stop smoking. Um, And we did 20 of them um, and created a huge amount of publicity around it. Um, and, and achieved the biggest uh, quit results um, that the government had ever experienced, just by thinking differently about the problem rather than, um, you know, listening to the experts again. Yeah, well, I, I put the cigar out and I may never smoke <laughs> another right. one, so well played, good sir. So let's talk about crises. We've talked about conflict, now we're going to talk about crises, and this was so relevant, particularly watching companies for the last year deal with 
the crisis of the, the pandemic. And you're right, crisis represents opportunities to exploit. And that's something that I saw a lot of companies do, but they probably won't admit it. But you were arguing crises are occasions to stand up and be counted. And you have a brilliant acronym on things you should think about when you're in a crisis. And they spell out crisis, C-R-I-S-I-S, and it's really well done. So there was a book called Crisis Ready on the show a couple years ago, and it was a brilliant book, and it was all about just this. So it was several hundred pages of exactly how to get ready for a crisis. And frankly, companies that don't think they need a crisis plan are the ones that most need it. So if you don't have a crisis plan, you could think about this uh, acronym. I was wondering if you could talk about that. And I, as you explain it, it's on page 116, where every one of these things in that acronym, a good and bad example came to mind for me, having just observed it over the last year. Hmm. Well, uh, the acronym is, um, I'll tell you the, the full thing, is Clarify, Review, Involve, Serve, Invest, and Strengthen. Um, so the first one's Clarify. I mean, so many brands fall at this first hurdle. They make the situation less clear. And you know, uh, I'm sure, again, with your military background, you'll know that good leaders uh, are very clear from the outset about what the situation is, even if it's very a very difficult situation. They're honest and upfront and clear about it, um, because if you are not clear, then um, a vacuum will occur and people will, uh, you know, make up their own stories about what's going on and um, you know, false rumors and uh, myths and all the rest of it will start spreading. Yeah, um, nature abhors a vacuum. Yes, that that's right, exactly. And of course, in today's uh, social media world, those stories can spread very quickly and misinformation can happen. Um, so, you know, really strong brands have to, no matter how difficult the question is and you know how tempting it might be to try and ignore the situation or hope it's going to go away, you just have to get out there and clarify what the situation is. And especially if you've been responsible for it. I mean, in the pandemic, that wasn't the case, but there have been other crises where, you know, brands have been caught doing something wrong and then hope that they might not get spotted. Um, but really, you've got to just fess up and put your hands up and say, we did this that was wrong, and here's how we're going to be dealing with it. Right. A couple of years ago, I think it was United Airlines, they dragged a passenger yeah. off the plane and bloodied him up because he wouldn't give his seat up to an employee of the airline that needed to get to the next stop. And as I recall, the CEO then issued, after some time, saying, I'm sorry people were upset that we did that, <laughs> which was that's, absolutely the wrong thing. It didn't make it any better. That's the way to apologize, isn't it, now, where people say, I'm sorry that you were upset. You know, Rather than saying, I'm sorry we actually did the, the thing that was wrong, we, they, they sort of make things worse, don't they? Which, which, again, just gives the story some extra legs and it keeps running. Mm -hmm. um, so clarity, clarity is just one simple thing. And these are all common sense principles, by the way, but unfortunately, common sense is in quite short supply in, in a crisis a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. um, so then the second thing is just reviewing what you're doing. Um, you know, of course, the first thing you probably look at is, you know, all the safety procedures. But quite often, especially as we are in a, a world where we are, you know, automating a lot of our marketing, you might have forgotten about something that is due to happen that made sense, you know, half an hour ago before this crisis broke, but now could be read with a very different, you know, um, meaning in mind. So there's a good example, I thought, of Spirit Airlines, another airline, 
um, who told the whole of America that there was never a better time to fly uh, just uh, a couple of days after the states announced their ban on air travel. Um, so that just went out as an automated air uh, an automated email mm-hmm. that, of course, just made them look really stupid and you know, attracted ridicule on social media. So you have to just check what you're doing and does it still make sense anymore? Or as Ali G would say, check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> That's it, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's a shame you didn't do the accent for that one, but yeah. Um, now, um, third one is about involving people. You know, you'd be surprised how how many companies have forgotten about that in the current crisis that, you know, your frontline workers are um, going to make or break you, really. And if they're feeling, you know, uh, that they've been treated badly by the company, why would they why would they stick up for the brand <laughs> and uh, present it in the best possible light? I know you can see in a crisis and you, I think a lot of people have been run into a, uh, an employee that said, I, I, I didn't know about that. I, <laughs> nobody told yeah. me about that. Yeah. Well, you know, they, they can be terrible sort of, um, you know, and we see it all the time, don't we? Where, where disgruntled employees actually make the crisis worse yes. because they feel that they've not been involved. Um, and, and, or alternatively, they can be, uh, a fantastic ally because even if it's a really, really difficult situation, like everyone's had to deal with over the last um, 18 months, um, if somebody is trying their very best as an employee and feels that they've got a real responsibility to the brand to protect it, um, you know, even if they're not doing things perfectly and there are still problems they need to talk about, then it, it's often the way that they deal with it can be the, the all important thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the next um, one is serve. Yeah, and that just brings to mind the beer we were just talking about. That's right. We're back to back to tenants. I'm you're smoking cigars. I'm having a pint of tenants as I as I do this. Um, yeah, I think you know what what you need to really think is how can I make things good. And so that I think this is a this is what some companies did well during the crisis. They genuinely perhaps turned over their factory to make hand sanitizer, or yes. they helped the medical profession in some way. But other companies, you sort of got the impression they were either trying to make money out of the situation, you know, really shamelessly and nakedly exploit the situation. They were putting prices up, for instance, um, or uh, they were just virtue signaling. They were they were doing things that on the surface made it look as if they were um, showing solidarity with people, but actually were just designed to get, you know, pats on the back. They weren't really sort of helping people. So, you know, I think every brand is different. You know, not every brand can help, um, you know, retool their factory, um, for instance, to start making, you know, protective equipment. But, you know, sometimes it can just be as simple as helping people laugh. There was a sort of funny moment in the crisis, wasn't there, when everyone just started making the same ads. Yes. And there was a video, and if I can find it, I'll include it on your episode's website page, that was like... um, they cut together several different yes. commercials, and, it, yes. and I think the title was "Every Pandemic Commercial." And That's the thing right. that irritated me—they all sounded the same. And yeah. but what was irritating was that they were—they were just talking. In other yeah. words, there were certain companies that were actually doing something, and that's exactly. worth talking about. But most of them were just saying, "In these times." <laughs> that's right. In these unprecedented times. Yes. Thank and then you. there'd be a there'd be a tinkly piano track behind that would sound very sad in a minor key, um, and then we'd see some sad faces. But you know, we'd we'd build a stirring, 
you know, sort of finish about um, how how sorry they all felt. But as you said, there was no action. So service is about doing stuff and acting mm-hmm. um, on behalf of you know the community. Um, and then the last two are investing. You know, so it's well established that you know the brands that really do well and that's difficult is to keep on investing through a crisis so that people remember you on the other side. You know, they don't just go completely um, quiet. Um, and and finally, to strengthen themselves. So, uh, you know, lots of brands right now thinking, how do we not just go back to the way that we were before, but how do we emerge uh, in a way that makes us uh, stronger um, and better placed in our communities um, than we would have been. You know, how do we make positive changes that maybe we should have made years ago, uh, and we'll use this terrible sort of situation to to improve us somehow? Um, so I think the point about the model is it's not about exploitation. It's not about rubbing our hands with glee and thinking, right, um, human misery. How can we make some money out of this? <laughs> I mean, perhaps we might make some money um, out of the situation in the long run but only by doing the right thing. I think, again, because consumers are very good at spotting this sort of behaviour right now, they're going to remember the brands who behave badly and they'll also remember the ones that behaved well. So make sure that you're in the the latter camp. Let me add to that by quoting from page 118. What you will hopefully notice about this model is it's not driven by opportunistic exploitation. Instead, it's centered around making the situation better for everyone and improving yourself in the process. Crises are, by definition, incredibly difficult situations where the natural tendency is to be lost in the short term. But amid the melee, brand owners need to see the bigger picture. Put another way, history doesn't look kindly on brands who chase ambulances. It favors those who purchase them, support them, and kit them out. And as a father of a paramedic, I particularly enjoyed that. Oh, wow. Well done. Well done to you. <laughs> so let's, let's go to a couple more of the others here that are just uh, so universal. This one is about uh, revealing your flaws, uh, and this is on um, what you call the lucky hitch, uh, page mm-hmm. 119. It's a, brands should always conceal their flaws, which I think is the natural response that companies have. And it, uh, it's, it's no re- there's, there's clearly a reason why <laughs> this followed right after the crisis chapter. Mm. But Luck says acknowledging a problem can boost your credibility and likability, and that is so true. Um, it's, it's come up in a number of books where, where they talk about how if you're too slick and uh, not terribly human, people don't trust you. If you acknowledge your flaws, in fact, if you're producing content and you explain why your particular product or service is not a fit, it does uh, so much better. Can you talk about this issue? And I, I, I want to quote where you say, self-deprecation seems less popular now than it was uh, in the in the in the 1960s, because you were talking about um, Bill Bernbach and his uh, Volkswagen commercials, you write a huge body of research has shown that a dash of humility not only makes you more likable, it makes your message more credible too. And you go on to write about how this sort of self-deprecating approach is less common now. I was surprised to see that. Why do you think that is? Yeah, this is going to sound funny because it's it's like I'm going to um, come across as the guy who says, "Yeah, I'm a I'm brilliant at self deprecation. I'm absolutely wonderful at humility." Um, but bear with me. I think I think the challenge is that um, that brands they 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 feel like they've got to you know it's a tough media environment. They've got to get their positive story out. And why would they spend you know valuable media dollars in 
talking about things that they're less good at, but they just forget this basic human truth that we've spoken about. And it sounds like um, some of your other um, guests have talked about whereby we actually appreciate it when someone, uh, you know, perhaps recognizes a failing or a flaw or can laugh at themselves um, somehow. And, uh, you know, certainly lots of the best campaigns um, by something like Bill Burnback used that old trick, you know, the classic think small for Volkswagen or the Avis, you know, we try harder. I also love the Guinness, to, to use another of uh, our uh, Celtic uh, cousins. Uh, <laughs> Please. Years. Um, so this one is definitely theirs. We can't claim this one. Um, but Guinness had a lovely line, which is good things come to those who wait, you know, because when you wait for a pint of Guinness, it, it takes a lot longer than other pints to pour. And that's, I guess, a real drawback of a beer. Um, but they turned that into a real strength by kind of making it feel like it was, there was some anticipation there so you wouldn't get frustrated by it. I mean, I think that's absolute genius. Um, and so I think one of the things that I always find really interesting when I work on a project is to find out what all the flaws are. Usually we don't ask questions about that kind of thing because it sounds like it's rude and we just want to know what the benefit of the brand is or what the the great story or what the amazing facts are. But can you but get I, that from customers when you talk to them? Yeah, get customers. Or what, One little trick that I sometimes enjoy is to go on social media <laughs> onto the snarkiest, meanest, um, nastiest, you know, sort of... Um, brands or comedians for instance and what find out what jokes do they make because there's often a sort of a a, a truth in a in jest isn't there in a joke mm-hmm. um whereby if they're making a joke about your brand why are they really doing that or cartoons is another one i go into google and i have a look at are there any cartoons that feature this brand and if so how are they portraying it and you know all a joke is is an exaggerated and comedic uh truth that's what the best ones do and then if you can take that truth and turn it on its head then that's often really really powerful because you're showing massive confidence that you can draw attention to your own flaw with sense of humor yourself and not only do that but actually um you know put a smile on people's uh faces in the process Mm -hmm. Um, like the coffee bags like the coffee bags, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You're acknowledging in advance. I know you think this is funny, so we're gonna, we're gonna. Before you can even think of that joke, we're gonna um, have fun with it ourselves and really <laughs> run with it. Yeah. So in my agency, when I run into a prospect who is a really glamorous, sexy product, I, I usually am very wary. <laughs> but yeah. I prefer, we, we joke and say, the more boring they think it is, the better. It's a greater opportunity, and there's probably, like if they're in a category where they think, well, these are just, you know, this is just some industrial sort of thing, or, uh, you know, we, we manufacture boring products. It's like, ah, uh, that's music to my ears. And I wanted to read from uh, page 133, where you have a whole chapter about the opportunities if you're in a category where people think it's boring. You're right. You know what the ultimate hard luck story is in marketing? Our category is low interest. As Richard Huntington, chairman of Saatchi and Saatchi London, has said, this is the advertising equivalent of my dog ate my homework. The truth is that no sector is really high interest. All marketers should remember that ordinary people have far better things to think about than the minutiae of their brands. And 
I was wondering if you could talk about your experience of getting creative brilliance against a, a dull background. Yeah, I think, um, as you say, that, that should inspire you. Because actually, if you do something creative against a dull background, it's going to stand out even more. I mean, that should be like a gift uh, to you. And, you know, as I say, the truth is that really all categories for most people, including we've talked about coffee bags there, you know, even beers, really. People don't want to talk about beers all day. They want to drink the beer and talk about other stuff. They want to talk about sport and so on. So, you know, really the, the trick is to not be downhearted about that, but to think, okay, we've got a little bit of, um, we, we know that we're not going to bore people into submission. That's definitely not going to work. But um, how can we how can we say something that's kind of interesting? And sometimes it comes again from acknowledging how boring it is. Um, right. You know, maybe that's maybe that's the unspoken, you know, the elephant in the room. And actually, there's a there's a fun story which I'm afraid does come from Scotland. That this is going to create the impression the book is full of Scottish references. It really isn't. But just no, I've, I've I've been egging you on. Please, since we've mentioned it, um, since we've mentioned it, there's a. There's a little place I was driving through in the middle of nowhere in Scotland a couple of years ago, and I came to this place that was really boring. There was nothing there. And when I looked on the road sign, it was literally called Dull. So it was the dullest place on earth. It was so boring. But they'd done something really smart and clever because on this little road sign in Dull, they had a little sign saying that the place was paired, you know, like the twin towns. It was paired with boring Oregon. It's a little place in Oregon called Boring. Um, and Bland, New South Wales in Australia. So these three towns with terrible names, Dull, Boring and Bland, had got together and formed a little, um, what they called a trinity of tedium, which I absolutely <laughs> loved. Yes. And they had promoted each other. Oh, I thought that was your, your writing. They called no, themselves they, the Trinity of Tedium? They called themselves the Trinity of uh, Tedium. So they came up with that. And these three towns who had nothing interesting about them, apart from how boring their names were, had become a little global phenomenon. They had lots of um, internet coverage and social media coverage about um, boring, dull and bland getting together. Because that just shows you, even if the material is as bad as that, actually, you know, you've got no excuses. Yes. Oh, my goodness. That was terrific. There's just such an opportunity, and yet it's layered in with some of the things we've already talked about, thinking, oh, there's only a certain way to to talk about our category, like the the non-smoking. Or... I think the same thing. In the United States, the insurance companies advertising, yeah. a lot of them are really very creative. And in the past, they were very, very boring. And somebody came along, it might have been Geico. Yeah, who, I know who, that campaign. Who woke is- everyone up. It's great. And that's a good example of, you know, what we were saying before about just being distinctive. I mean, there's all I remember from the Geico advertising is the name, right? And the, I guess it uses a gecko. I mean, that's it's a kind of fairly flimsy joke. I know they've done other stuff since, but it's sort of, that's the stuff I really remember. I, and, you know, in a really boring category, that's all I need. I don't need to know their point of view on... Um, all these big global issues. I just need to remember the name and then I'll maybe consider them for my insurance. Right. Well, last thing I want to talk about for this section was uh, what you call Lucky Bastards, 137. Hmm. We can talk about that. And I've always been told, uh, don't feed the trolls. And as someone who's been actively uh, attacked on social media, it really doesn't bother me because I'm the youngest of four children. And even at my advanced hmm. age, I still crave any kind of attention. <laughs> but you write... You shouldn't draw attention to negative comments. Okay, that's the 
the conventional thinking. Mm. But you should, you write that luck says you should embrace them and learn from them. And I loved it. Could you talk about the, uh, the Lucky Bastards program? Yeah, sure. So this was something, you know, last year or a couple of years ago, I was just witnessing quite a lot of this horrible stuff. Like you say, we've all probably experienced it or certainly seen it on social media, really unpleasant, you know, whether it's racist or, you know, um, other forms of bigotry. And, and of course, your natural instinct is to jump straight back in there and send something equally horrible back at the people who are saying the unpleasant things. But I thought, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's not making the world a better place. Well, that's what they want. Yeah, that's what they want. They want that attention. So I thought, what's, what don't they want? Well, they probably don't want what I'm just going to do now, which is to set up a, a sort of pretend game show called Lucky Bastards with a nice big smiley logo. And then I went through um, you know, social media looking for instances of where people were using the word bastards and... Uh, uh, and with a with a sort of a, a slur associated with it, whether it was you know gay bastards or um, you know uh, feminist bastards or whatever, um, and then um, I'd send them a really jolly message saying hi, thanks for playing lucky bastards, um, really appreciate it, and I'm going to turn your horrible comment into a ten pound donation to. And then the appropriate charity. So if they were talking about these gay bastards, we would send the money to the biggest um, LGBT charity in the UK. And then we'd sign off all the messages with a kiss. Um, right. and, which, then it, and then like you would, would you tag that organization? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, then, so then they would chime in and they were always, you know, really delighted and pleased. Um, the recipient, you know, the, the person who'd said the hate comment was really you know, either really annoyed or really confused because they didn't they didn't think they had entered a competition. Um, and of course, lots of people on social media, you know, uh, circulated the message because it, they could see how it was funny. And we were making these people look ridiculous, which is sort of a better weapon sometimes, isn't it? Than just yes, ridicule, them. satire, just right? Ridicule was really powerful. So then they would be sharing it because it was just a funny funny thing um and the only problem the only person that didn't like it was our bank manager because when we set up the bank account to handle all these payments um the the name lucky bastards created absolute havoc with uh <laughs> all their banking systems uh oh. so um they didn't like it but everyone else did oh my goodness well Let's go to the last section, and that is, I'll just ask you a couple things, because I know we're running a bit long, but you know those Scottish, they have the gift of gab. Yeah. And this is about how to practice being lucky, okay? Very mm. interesting section. Now, you're Scottish, and you're a lawyer, okay? So yeah. you probably already know that marketing podcast law requires that I ask you about golf. So if you could talk about this concept about aiming for perfection versus trying to hold on to that elusive 100% perfection. Yeah, so I should point out that I'm a disgrace to the nation by not um, actually playing golf. Uh, uh, but obviously, that is uh, a passion of my uh, compatriots. Oh, well, um, I'll let it that part out, because otherwise I'm going to lose every new Scottish listener I just picked up. <laughs> That's right. They'll all hate me. I'll be the one getting the trolls. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, the, what I found is a really interesting thing about golf is that, um, you know, there's a very famous metric for perfection in golf, which is the hole-in-one. So um, you might think that all golfers aim every time for a hole-in-one, they aim at the flag, but actually they don't. 
Um, and the reason they don't is that they, they, they know that actually there's a high chance of them getting that wrong, such a specific target. And so actually what's more effective is to leave the ball a little bit shy of the hole, um, which they call leaving the ball stiff. So just leaving it, you know, just a little bit um, uh, further away um, so that they can um, have an easy putt into like the hole. Maybe on the downslope. That's right. So that they so that they have uh, that that they're not sort of um, uh, overhitting it, um, and and then I think what what's interesting then they know that um, you know if they end up above the hole they're going to have a more difficult downhill shot. If really what they want is an easy putt that goes uphill, um, um, but the point is that they're not aiming for perfection every single time. Um, and over the course of a round or a competition or a career, that is much more likely to uh, to to see them succeed. There is one golfer, or there's a couple of golfers who over time have tried to just aim for the flag every time. In fact, the guy who uh, holds the world record for holes in one is an amazing guy, actually. He's a guy called Mansell Davis, um, who I think has got about 51 holes in one. And he does aim for the hole uh, every time. Um, but he it also means that he has had a lot of uh, occasions where he's uh, overhit it and taken, you know, many more shots to get the hole than his um, rivals would. So, you know, he's not really made it above kind of journeyman sort of trivia status. Um, so, I think the lesson for us there is that don't think that aiming for perfection each time is a perfect strategy. Quite often, what you're better to do is to try and get an idea eighty or ninety percent finished and get it out there and make it happen, then hang on for that elusive 5 or 10%. Um, because while you're trying to make an idea absolutely perfect, uh, you know your rival might be coming out with more or less the same idea, um, but quicker. Mm-hmm. Or you know somebody in the boardroom might be killing it because you know sometimes the, the longer you try and hone something and perfect it, it just becomes an excuse for doing nothing or for making it worse. Um, and you know we we live in a world that's so quick and and imperfect now that you know maybe you're better to just imp- improve your chances by not aiming for 100 percent each time, but just get to a really good 90 percent, um, which is good enough. Yes, and it brings to mind a book that was on the show a while back called Strategy Mindset 2.0, where it was about strategy, obviously. And the author was explaining, Chuck Bamford was explaining that too often companies are going for perfection and it's really not that important to their customers. No. <laughs> so, no. like, the example he gave was we want to have the best accounts payable department in the industry. No, no, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. You just need to be adequate. That's not yeah. what they care about. And I see this with a lot of manufacturers where they're, you know, they're obsessed with the technology and they're very uh, enamored with it and it's very important to them. But not usually as important to the customer. So the last thing I wanted to ask about was something that we touched on earlier, and that has to do with this controversial topic of a social purpose. Mm. And you you mentioned in this uh, chapter about this Saturday Night Live sketch. I had never seen yeah. it, so I, I watched it, and it was very funny, and I'll include a link to it in this episode's website page. We're going to have a lot of nice videos there. Mm. And you explain something that I also encountered in Grant Leboff's book, uh, Myths of Marketing, where he explained that a lot of companies, you shouldn't feel like you have to have this larger social purpose. There's a lot of, it, it doesn't really, it actually might be harming you. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. In this chapter, The Lucky Goal, 
you talk about some of the things that companies should think about before they try to embrace one of these you know, brand-driven purposes. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing that everyone should think about is, is this true? I mean, pardon me for saying something so obvious, but there are so many companies right now that talk about, you know, their wonderful position on some issue or other, but then behind the scenes, they're, they're not um, living up to that um, as a company. You know, they're not hiring diversely or they're ruining the environment while they talk about um, protecting those things. So, I mean, for goodness sake, get your own house in order first and make sure that your uh, company is kind of living up to these things. Um, yeah, so let me just interject one more time. There was a, a book on the show a while back called Unfiltered Marketing, and they talked about how, through all this research, how consumers generally see through that. In other words, it's, yeah. if you take a stand on something that you've never taken a stand on before, and it's not really what your organization is about, not only do people see through it, it might actually hurt your business. Definitely, because it makes you look dishonest, disingenuous, again, exploiting issues. These are big, serious things a lot of the time. And to be trying to make money out of, um, you know, a, a health crisis or, a, um, you know, a racial uh, inequality or something like that, that's pretty bad stuff, isn't it? So people are rightly very uh, annoyed when companies try to jump on those bandwagons. Without right, an having- example would be a couple of years ago, Pepsi did a commercial yeah. where they were showing uh, a fake uh, protest. And yeah. I think one of the protesters offered a, co- a Pepsi to the police officer. That's right. <laughs> I'll include that, too, on this episode's website page. But that's a great example of where they, they got it wrong. Yes, exactly. You know, what, what right has a brand got to intervene in that space, which is causing so much anguish to people in the real world? Mm-hmm. Um and try and sell us some soda off the back of it. So, you know, you have to be really clear that you're genuinely, um, you know, committed to that particular cause and doing lots of good things. And again, we come to this word action, don't we? That you, what are you doing um, rather than just saying about that particular cause um, and prioritize the actions and rather than the, the words, really. Um, then I think you've got to be distinctive. You know, we forget about, you know, that is the... F- we've talked about those sort of uh, very samey ads that came out in the pandemic. Well, you know, if everyone's talking about the same issues in the same way, that doesn't really, um, you know, benefit you either um, because you just get lost as one of, you know, lots of brands um, often talking about things that are not even all that controversial because they're just, you know, they, they're just mouthing sort of platitudes about things that we probably all would agree, yeah, you know, you shouldn't do that or you should do that. Um, so it, it's often sort of uh, causes that are dressed up to sound controversial, but aren't aren't really because most people um, uh, are, are already there sort of thing. Uh, so it's not very brave of the brands. Um, and then, you know, it's about, you know, things like commitment, does this really reflect what the organization is about? You know, the, the truth of the organization, you know, it really helps if you're, if you're somebody like Warby Parker that was set up um, with a, a, a true mission at its heart to, um, I, I believe they donate glasses to nonprofits for every pair sold. Well, then that is the truth about why you set up that company and how it exists and how it functions. If you just try and bolt it on after, you know, being around for a hundred years or whatever, then it, 
as you say, it just sounds odd in the same way it sounds odd that a human being, if one of your friends who had never expressed a point of view on politics ever, suddenly started having very deep and meaningful conversations about the world, you might raise an eyebrow and think what what had gone into them. <laughs> Where did this come from? Yes. Yeah. You know, as it relates to distinctive language, you write, the strategies are typically expressed as turgid manifestos <laughs> on well-trodden themes like bringing people together or empowering humans. The advertising uses the same tone, mawkish, sentimental, or pseudo-inspirational. Even the executions blur into each other with their tinkly piano tracks, social experiments, and vox pop vignettes. And that's why the, the skit from Saturday Night Live is so funny, because it, 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 pits, it shows two agencies pitching the Cheetos account, and one of them is doing all these things that are trying to sound like that, and the other agency is just trying to show it's a fun product for people to eat. <laughs> and it was, I, I appreciate you including that. So, Andy, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I would like them to realize that luck is a good thing in business, not a bad thing. You know, and that we can all stack the odds in our brand's favour, not just by, you know, uh, working harder and harder and harder, um, but being mindful of our luck. Mm -hmm. Being open to luck, I think for me was the biggest, uh, yeah, one of the biggest points of just being being ready for it. Yeah. So, what is one thing a listener could do today to put in action an idea from your book or uh, one that we've talked about to get them going on this luck journey? I think it's it's one that we've mentioned, which is to identify a flaw. Just spend a little moment in your day to think about um, something that's not great about your brand or product. What's a, what's something that feels like a weakness? And write that down and then spend a little bit of time thinking to yourself, how could that actually turn out to be a really good bit of luck, um, you know, a strength or a benefit? Mm -hmm. Embrace your flaws, and yeah. you will actually seem more human. And as I was reading the book, I brought to mind a an ad campaign from when I lived in New York, and it, I think it was for some car dealership in that area. And they would have these really awful ads. I mean, like they were so bad they were good. And the tagline was something like "Great cars, lousy ads." Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> so it sort of addressed what people were were thinking. So looking back, what books have most inspired your working career? And please don't include any uh, law books. Uh, yes, I don't think anyone would be interested by them, include, including me. Um, well, um, Evidently not. That, that's right. That, that was a long time ago. Disruption by Jean-Marie Drew is a great book. I oh, read yeah. that many, many years ago. Um, before the language of disruption, I mean, that's obviously now very common um, these days, but he was using that 20... 25 years ago, um, and I thought it was a really interesting way to think about the world. Yes, that was mentioned on a recent another interview recently. Yeah. Yeah, so, so that one. And then one that I know has been mentioned on some of your other interviews, but I've got to say it because it's the truth, is that Eating the Big Fish um, by Adam Morgan, mm -hmm. I think, is a, just, you know, that, that really brought to um, our attention the idea of being a challenger brand. And, you know, I think a lot of um, a lot of great work since then has sort of built on that, uh, those kind of sh shoulders, I guess. Hmm. Terrific, yeah. So, are there any recent or upcoming books that you 
recommend or looking forward to reading perhaps now that you have a little more time to read yes um yeah it's interesting that you don't you go for a while not reading very much because you're so busy writing your own thing so <laughs> i'm looking imagine, forward yeah. yeah looking forward to reading a book called brand splaining uh by jane cunningham and philippa roberts which is all about um the sort of sexism i guess that is still baked into a lot of modern marketing and just there are so few books uh, about marketing written by women actually um oh it's true yeah it's it's so i think just getting reading that from a different perspective and and uh making sure that um i'm not making any of the sort of mistakes that we all subconsciously sometimes do i think will be a really interesting read oh wow um I have not seen this. It's uh, brand splaining why marketing is still sexist and how to fix it. Yeah. And uh, Jane Cunningham and Philippa Roberts. They'd be an interesting one, maybe, to have on. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I appreciate you telling me about that. And then there's a book called by a very wise man called Paul Feldwick called Why Does the Peddler Sing? Um, and his point is so a peddler in case that word doesn't really exist in the States, it's kind of a door-to-door salesman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess his book is all about entertainment. His kind of thesis seems to be, and I've not read it yet, but I'm looking forward to, is that we've forgotten that we need to, you know, the great sales people also entertain. And he sort of draws on, you know, examples like the circus or, you know, the real great sort of, you know, the early great showmen, I guess, who understood just really how to sort of connect with big audiences. And, and perhaps he would say of some of the things we just talked about, you know, this, um, you know, if we lost our sense of humor and, and our showmanship and our desire to entertain in a lot of the advertising that people are making these days. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. Why does the peddler sing what creativity really means in advertising? And I see a, a past guest, Rory Sutherland at Ogilvy, he wrote, this is a fabulous book. It is possibly the book I would most highly recommend to anyone in marketing. Wow. A couple of great books. Thank you for obviously, telling me about Obviously, that. the second the second most important book that anyone should buy um, involved in marketing. Um, All right. Yeah, I'll talk to Rory, see if I can uh, get him to revise that. I mean, it's on Amazon, so he can change it easily sure. enough. Well, terrific. Well, as I mentioned before, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to everything linkable and calling including all the videos I mentioned, uh, the books that you've mentioned, your site, uh, your LinkedIn profile. And Andy, earlier we mentioned that one lucky listener, lucky, get it, can win a copy of your book. Tell them how, how they might do that. Well, uh, we've actually got seven copies of the book to give away because wow. uh, seven is a lucky number, right? So I think yes. we need to do this properly. And if you, if you send me an email at lucky seven at luckygenerals.com. Um, first seven people to do that, we will send them a book. So lucky seven at luckygenerals.com and make sure you use the letters to spell out the word seven. Lucky seven at luckygenerals.com. And do they need to mention that they heard it on the Marketing Book Podcast? Yes, please. That would be fantastic. Yeah, terrific. And one other thing I want to ask the listener to do, and that is, uh, please otherwise reach out to Andy on social media or to his website or, or however you can and thank him for being a guest on the show. There are over a million podcasts and he has decided to come on this one and he spent a lot of time with us and I really appreciate it. You will really make his day. All the authors who've been on the Marketing Book Podcast talk about how much they enjoy hearing from the listeners. So, 
uh, please do that for me. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Group Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Apple or Spotify, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The book is Go Luck Yourself, 40 Ways to Stack the Odds in Your Brand's Favor. The author is Andy Nairn. Andy, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on, and I'm going to go off and listen to some bagpipe music now. You've put me really in the mood. You're lucky, wee man! And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you. And I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.